Hey, Not Past It listeners, it's time for another historical domino effect. That's where we travel through time and see how one moment in history topples over a string of events, bringing us to unexpected places. In today's episode, we'll discover how a shocking crime from the 1930s led to one American teenager becoming a pop star overseas. From Gimlet Media, this is Not Past It, a show about the stories we can't quite leave behind. I'm Simone Polanin. On May 12, 1932, 91 years ago this week, an infamous kidnapping came to its tragic conclusion. This kidnapping, which came to be known as the crime of the century, marked a loss of innocence for young people at the time, but would go on to shape the hopes, fears, and careers of generations of children. The dominoes are all lined up, and we'll knock over the first one after the break. There's no better feeling than a personal win, and the State Farm Personal Price Plan can help you do just that. Talk to a State Farm agent today to learn how you can bundle and save with the personal price plan. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Prices are based on rating plans that vary by state. Coverage options are selected by the customer. Availability, amount of discounts and savings, and eligibility vary by state. There's a new class of blockbuster drugs. Drugs like Ozempic. They're changing bodies. And all of a sudden, just the weight starts falling off. Fortunes. It just got too expensive. They're just bank breakers. And industries. There was a lot of excitement. There was a lot of skepticism. The impact of these drugs from business to health is just beginning. From the journal, Trillion Dollar Shot. Find it in the journal feed wherever you get your podcasts. All right. I am joined by a very special guest today. She's an actor and a writer for stage and screen. Welcome, Rivka Reyes. Hello. Thank you for having me. Yes, thank you for coming on the show. I'm very excited to have you here. Now, Rivka recently made the upcoming short film Gianna. But for those listening, you may also recognize Rivka from the 2003 Jack Black movie School of Rock, where she played a fifth grade bassist. You, could you come up here, please? What was your name? Katie. Katie, what was that thing you were playing today, the big thing? Cello. Okay, this is a bass guitar, and it's the exact same thing, but instead of playing like this, you tip it on the side, cello, you've got a bass. Try it on. I'll spare you, like, the full gushing mode, but let me just say, that movie changed my life. Really big for the crush economy at my middle school. Yeah, okay, so who was your crush? Oh, well, hmm, this is very interesting that you ask me. <laughs> I mean, can I say you? Is this like yeah, an okay oh place God. to start? <laughs> Iconic. Great. Love it. I'm like sweating a little bit. Wow. Oh my God, me too. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, yeah. I love that. Well, I'm excited to talk to you because of that movie as a fan, but also because your experience as a child actor may come in handy today uh, because we will be touching on a different child star's career in our history domino journey. So I'm very 
interested to hear your perspective. Oh, I can't wait to find out whomst it is. We will get there. But, you know, you've shared in your writing and and online and stuff that you personally have sort of a complicated relationship with your own experience working in entertainment as a child, as many former child stars do. But I want to start off by asking, were there any child stars who you idolized as a kid? Definitely. I was the biggest fan of Mara Wilson, who played Matilda, and also Emma Watson, I was uh, really enamored with. Oh, yeah. I feel like Emma Watson as Hermione in the Harry Potter movies was just like every like little bookworm's role model. But I'm I'm curious, what was it for you that drew you to those actors? Specifically with Emma Watson and Mara Wilson as Matilda and Hermione, like as a child who was into witchcraft from very young, I was like, oh my God, they can move stuff with their minds. And, you know, I'd sit in my room and try to move stuff with my mind um, as well. And I also liked characters that were really bright, really smart, and were able to kind of stand up to authority figures just using their wit and their ambitions because I felt like I could relate to that in some way. Well, um, child actors and children in entertainment. This will all become relevant later in our journey, but we're actually going to start off somewhere totally different, as we often find with these Domino episodes and, frankly, with history in general. Joy and tragedy live very close to each other. Darkness and lightness are linked, which is all to say we're starting our Domino with a historically significant and deeply unsettling crime that took place in the 1930s. So let's begin with domino number one. Now, on May 12, 1932, 91 years ago this week, the search for a missing baby came to a close. Prior to this, the whole nation had been looking for this child for months. Even the famed gangster Al Capone offered reward money to anyone with information on the baby's whereabouts. That's in part because the baby had some very prominent parents. Now, Rivka, do you have any guesses as to who this baby might have been? No, let me see. Let me make an educated guess. I want to say it's from like a big family, Um, like one of the the Vanderbilts. Was it a Vanderbilt baby? Hmm, not a bad guess. It was not a Vanderbilt baby. It was Charles Lindbergh Jr. You might have heard him referred to as the Lindbergh baby. Mm, I have never heard of this. <laughs> All right. Well, let me tell you more. So um, Charles Lindbergh Jr., he was the son of an American pilot, Charles Lindbergh, who was one of the most famous figures in the world at the time. Years prior, in 1927, Lindbergh had captivated the public when he flew across the Atlantic nonstop He was one of the first people to do so. So suffice to say, he was kind of a big deal, which also made him a target. Early on the evening of March 1st, 1932, Charles Jr. was tucked away in the nursery on the second floor of his parents' manor in Hopewell, New Jersey. But at 10 p.m., his nanny returned to the nursery and noticed something was wrong. Charles Jr. was nowhere to be found. Muddy footprints formed a path from the baby's crib to the window. 
the nanny quickly alerted the Lindberghs that their baby was missing. When they dashed upstairs and went to little Charles Jr.'s room, in his place was a ransom note for $50,000. And as soon as the Lindberghs notified the authorities, a frantic search for the baby began. Here is a clip from a newsreel detailing that rescue mission. And already the state troopers are going through the neighborhood with a fine-tooth comb to meet the challenge of a criminal degenerate. Not a single bed is overlooked, not a single suspicion unverified in the search for the most famous baby in the world, innocent, 20-month-old son of the Lone Eagle and his mate, the victim of as cruel and fiendish a crime as any human can be guilty of. Now, imagine you're a kid living in New Jersey in 1932, and you hear that. What would your reaction be? I'm next. Like, immediately. Like, your thought would be, like, they're coming for me next. Yeah, well, I I totally remember, you know, the scare tactics my parents used when Elizabeth Smart and Samantha Runyon went missing. Like, I was so terrified that I was next, and they were, like, you know, very protective of me in that way. And this was, like, before I was a... Um, a famous actor. So, <laughs> you know, I, I, I guess, uh, yeah, I guess my reaction would be to make it about me. Um. <laughs> sure, sure. Uh-huh, uh-huh. Well, um, to bring it back to the Lindberghs, I can tell you that they did end up paying the $50,000 ransom. Unfortunately, it did not lead to the return of Charles Jr. So, the nationwide manhunt continued, and it was such a big story that the press started calling it the crime of the century. The massive rescue mission did, however, finally reach its conclusion after a little more than two months. And unfortunately, everyone's worst fears were confirmed. Uh, a truck driver found the body of Charles Lindbergh Jr. off the side of a highway in southern New Jersey. And obviously for the family, And anyone following the story, this was devastating news. And adding to the horror of this was the fact that the New York Daily News printed photos of Charles Jr.'s body taken at the scene, which they published in an early edition of that day's paper. So fucked up. Yeah, yeah. Um, The Lindbergh family threatened to sue the publishers, and the newspaper took the photos out of print later that same day but not before the images were seared into the memories of some New Yorkers, including one young boy who would go on to become a famous adult. And that brings us to domino number two. Now, that young boy was named Maurice Sendak. And I'm curious, Rivka, does that ring any bells for you? Yes, Maurice Sendak, the author of Where the Wild Things Are. Yes, correct. Yeah. And as an adult, actually, Sendak said in multiple interviews that the kidnapping and murder of Charles Lindbergh Jr. changed him in part because of those graphic photos that were printed in the paper. And we have a clip of him speaking about that in a 2009 documentary about his life and career. Now, I was shopping with my mother and we were shopping and we walked past the newsstand and I looked at the newsstand and it said, I couldn't read, but I, I remember the word Lindbergh. It said, Lindbergh baby found dead. And then I could pick arrow pointing down to something. 
as a corpse had been exposed for about three months. I saw it. And I went crazy. Now, four-year-old Maurice Sendak was living in Brooklyn, New York, just 50 miles away from Hopewell, New Jersey. So that proximity, plus the photo he saw, you know, it's no wonder he was so heavily influenced. Sounds like you are familiar with his work, though. Did you read him growing up? Just where the wild things are. I do remember the illustration, the cover and the monsters on the cover of the book. I wonder if there were other books of his that I read when I was a child, but I do remember feeling transported. Yeah, it's very, I mean, it like, it, yeah, totally takes you into this unique, fantastical world. Um, and something that I think is true about that book and about his other books is there's something both magical and unsettling about the stories that he tells. Mm-hmm. A bit grotesque. Yeah, totally. Now, we've already mentioned Sendak's best-known work, but there was one other book of his that he said was explicitly inspired by the kidnapping of Charles Lindbergh Jr., and that is 1981's Outside Over There. Are you familiar with this book at all? No. Yeah, I I wouldn't expect you to. I think it's pretty obscure. I do want to show you one of the illustrations from the book, though. So we'll take a look. Oh, my God. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, For those who can't see, can you please describe what is happening in this drawing? Oh, I'd absolutely love to. So um, on the left, we have a young redheaded girl playing what looks to be a French horn. And then there's a bassinet and there's a baby sitting up um, looking completely ghastly and uh, some would say... uh, gooped and then uh there's a window open and two hooded figures are taking another baby out of the window that's that's uh, the gist of it that's pretty jarring well i can give you some context to this illustration so in the book the main character ida is supposed to be watching her baby sibling when a group of hooded goblins kidnap the toddler and replace it with an ice baby. Oh my gosh. So that's what that ghastly, wide-eyed baby in the bassinet is. Now, in order to save her baby sibling, Ida follows the goblins into the land outside over there. And eventually, spoiler alert, Ida saves the baby by playing a song on what the book refers to as her wonder horn, which I guess is that French horn-looking thing. Um, and it turns the goblins into water. Good. Uh, as, you know, French horns are known to do. Yeah. In the end, Ida safely returns home with her baby sibling, which in a way is kind of like Sendak rewriting a happy ending to the Lindbergh kidnapping. What do you make of that choice? I think that's beautiful. I think that's a, you know, art is a great outlet to rewrite things the way we wish that they went. A lot of my work, <laughs> as far as like my writing goes, you know, whether that's film or or plays, kind of are a fictionalized version of something that happened to me that uh, I get to kind of recreate the narrative around. So I'm I'm happy that that Mr. Sendak had this outlet to rewrite history, literally. Yeah, totally. Is it just goes to show that you turn your shoulder for one second to practice your wonder horn, and then 
poof, your sibling's gone. Yeah. Don't practice your instrument, kids. That's the takeaway. That's the moral. (laughs) Now, the cultural chemtrail of the Lindbergh baby kidnapping doesn't end here because not long after its release, Sendax outside over there is echoed in another piece of culture, this time on the silver screen. We'll knock over that next domino after the break. Welcome back, my little goblins. I'm making my way through a historical domino with my guest, Rivka Reyes. So before the break, we were just talking about Maury Sendak's Outside Over There, which was inspired by the 1932 Lindbergh kidnapping and tells the story of a baby being taken away by goblins while his sister should have been watching after him. And I'm curious if that plot sounds uh, suspiciously familiar to you perhaps strikingly similar to one cult classic film from 1986. I can even give you a little hint. Yes, I love a hint. All right, here's here's your hint. We'll, we'll play this clip. You're no match for me, Sarah. Ah, yes. But I have to have my brother back. He's there in my castle. Do you still want to look for him? Is that the castle beyond the Goblin City? Turn back, Sarah. Turn back before it's too late. Labyrinth. Labyrinth, yes, Labyrinth. Um, And that movie is at the center of domino number three. So you recognize that pretty immediately. Um, Was Labyrinth a big movie for you growing up? I saw it once when I was little, and I vowed to never again. I was a little too spooked by it. Oh, oh. <laughs> I was a big Bowie fan too. I mean, I my dad, you know, is a big seventies, um, eighties rock guy, and he was always blasting Bowie in the house. And then my dad was like, "Oh, he's in this movie." I don't even think I got through it. I was too, I was too mm, spooked, too scary. Yeah, it is. Um, it's a freaky movie. I didn't like seeing Bowie in that way. Gotcha. For those who are not familiar with the film, I'll give a little a little recap. So it's, you know, a classic from the 1980s. Um, goblins kidnap a baby into a mystical land, and the baby's sister, Sarah, has to go on an adventure in order to save the day. The film was directed by Jim Henson of Muppets fame, like you said, starred David Bowie as Jareth, the Goblin King. And it is like this total fever dream of a movie. The visuals are super trippy. It's got this like medieval aesthetic mixed with a psychedelic vibe. But despite the different look, the plot of the movie is pretty similar to Sendax Outside Over There, um, which had only come out just five years earlier. You know, it's interesting. Jim Henson and his collaborators, they claimed that their movie was not based on Sendak's work, but it was inspired by several European fairy tales where goblins kidnap babies from their homes. But at one point during the production of the movie, Sendak's attorney sent a message to Jim Henson accusing him of stealing the plot. 
And so to avoid a potential lawsuit, the filmmakers included a line of text in the end credits that reads, quote, Jim Henson acknowledges his debt to the works of Maurice Sendak. Interesting addition if you claim that you were not inspired by that book. But, you know, they threw that in there. Yeah, there's at least that. Yeah. Um, So Labyrinth came out, and in the years since, it has become a cult classic, you know, in part because it's got David Bowie and some awesome puppets, but also because it launched the career of a certain up-and-coming Hollywood star. And that brings us to domino number four. Now, do you know which actress I'm talking about in this case? What actress starred in Labyrinth? I I I have a bit of face blindness when it comes to white actresses, so forgive me if I'm wrong, but uh, was it Jennifer Connelly? Was I right? That is correct. Yeah, yeah, you got it. You got it. Oh my God, nice. Wow, that is the <laughs> first time that's ever happened on the first guess. Yeah, you nailed that one. Knew it was a Jennifer. You got the right Jennifer. <laughs> um, now, when Jim Henson was casting for the role of Sarah, he auditioned a bunch of big name actresses in their late teens and early twenties at the time. I'm talking Helena Bonham Carter, Marissa Tomei, even Sarah Jessica Parker. But yeah, Jennifer Connelly is the one who clinched the role in the end. Um, And she was just 15 years old when she was cast. And we actually have a clip from her audition. Are you meant to be my guide? Mm, Could be, I suppose. Well, where's the door? Mind your own business. Well, you're not much of a guide. Who said I was your guide? Well, are you or aren't you? She ate. (laughs) She really did. I'm like, okay, giving ingenue. Outside of Labyrinth, are you familiar with uh, Jennifer Connelly? In some ways, yeah. Again, like, you know, she's one of the Jennifers. I know that. <laughs> um, but yeah, I can't, I literally, you said, you say the name, I can only think of one movie that she's been in, and that's Labyrinth. So, <laughs> well, I can give you some of her other credits. She's probably best known for her Oscar winning performance in A Beautiful Mind um, or co starring in Requiem for a Dream. Or if you're a little rom-com freak like me, you may know her from He's Just Not That Into You. Yes. You know, it's called cinema, guys. (laughs) But back in the mid-80s, when Connelly was cast in Labyrinth, she was still making a name for herself. And as her star was rising in the U.S., she was also starting to get some new fans overseas. Rivka, what country in the world would you guess a bunch of Jennifer Connelly stands emerged in? Uh, in England? Good guess, considering the language thing. I'll just, I'll tell you. Yes, yes. The country was Japan. Ah. Labyrinth actually underperformed at the U.S. box office, but it made over $9 million in Japan, which, adjusted for inflation, is more than $23 million today which is like double what many big Hollywood movies have grossed in Japan in recent years. Wow. So Labyrinth uh, did very well. And our girl J-Con was popping up all over Japanese media. In 1986, as part of the Labyrinth publicity campaign, she appeared on several magazine covers in Japan. You can actually still find some of those on eBay. Hot tip. They actually are very cute. (laughs) But she didn't just cover magazines. Like any good starlet, she also appeared in ad campaigns. 
Around this time, the Japanese public may have caught Connolly in a series of ads for the tech company Panasonic uh, for this device, which um, it worked as both a sound system and a phone. Let's take a look at one of those ads now. This is Jennifer. Oh my God. <laughs> you look so bamboozled. Um, please, Rivka, walk us through what you just saw. Yeah, so in black and white, we see the profile of a young Jennifer Connolly singing a song in Japanese, I'm guessing. Mm -hmm. Almost like ethereally and beautifully, like a little forest nymph. And then um, the, the, the black and white starts to fade into color. And then we see a plate with a pear and some grapes on it. And then we cut to the <laughs> machinery that has a CD in it. So now, yes, we are learning that this is a music playing system. And then cut back to Jennifer, confidently saying, this is Jennifer, wearing her headset. Iconic. And it's so funny that she's singing in Japanese, because as far as I know, like, she has never been fluent in Japanese. An interesting fact about the song, it was actually co-written by Taiko Onuki, who is a pretty influential Japanese musician. She's like queen of Japanese city pop. And there isn't a ton of information out there about the making of this commercial, but some music producer evidently must have decided the Labyrinth star had a hit on her hands. And that's going to take us to domino number five. Oh my God. Now, that jingle that Jennifer Connelly sang wasn't just used for a Panasonic commercial. In 1986, the same year that Labyrinth came out, a longer version of the jingle was also released in Japan as a single called I Know Monologue or Monologue of Love. And the song actually resurfaced because of a 2019 interview that Connolly did on The Graham Norton Show. Here is the thing, not the only pop star on the couch. I turn to you, Jennifer Connolly. What? Yeah, you've topped the charts, haven't you? No! Yes, you did! No! You did in Japan! You didn't you were you number one in Japan? What? Um, okay, so here's the story. <laughs> so we haven't been able to confirm Norton's claim that the song was number one. And for what it's worth, Conley basically goes on to say that she only vaguely remembers recording the song. But we do know that it was actually more than just a single because it somehow also became part of a Christmas album. It was packaged in an EP called Jennifer's Xmas. Oh, my God. <laughs> yeah. The cover of the EP has a big heart around a tiny picture of Connolly, and it's got a lot of pastel pink going on. It's really, it's very cutesy. Um, and the album itself starts off with this message straight from Jennifer. Hi, I'm Jennifer Connolly, and I would like to wish you a very Merry Christmas. 
<laughs> what do you think of those those words from Jen? Well, thank you. Is what I say. <laughs> um, I'm a I'm a Jew, but I I do celebrate Christmas year round. Uh, <laughs> That's pretty much the extent of how Christmassy the album gets, actually. It also includes that Panasonic jingle, some instrumental songs, uh, a few other clips of Connolly talking. Um, she talks about things like how much she enjoys going to art galleries in Soho, 15-year-old things, I guess. Um, and it finally ends with one more clip from Connolly. I would like um, to thank all my Japanese fans very much. They've been very supportive and very good friends. And... Um I hope I get to meet some of you someday. I think it would be nice. And um, and all of you who've been writing letters, I want you to know that I've been reading all of them and I'm going to write you back and I really appreciate it. Thanks. Now, knowing the contents of Jennifer's Xmas, do you think you would have purchased a copy? No. No. <laughs> if it's not, you know, if it's marketing a Christmas album, like at least do silver bells, you know, at least do, um, like give me Oh Holy Night. Give me, give me this Christmas, Donny Hathaway. The message is cute though. At the end, I think that's really sweet. Yeah. I mean, very fair criticism. The Christmas of it all is very scant. Now, you know, as we've, as we've gone on this whole journey through time, through history, through labyrinth, There is an interesting thread in all of these dominoes that we've talked about, which is that they're all about the lives of children. They all kind of touch on how easily the illusion of childhood can be broken and how kids can be transported from their normal lives into unfamiliar territory. You know, whether that's kidnapping, being stolen away by goblins, or even something that's generally more positive, like exploring pop stardom in Japan. And, you know, we don't know for sure how Jennifer Connelly's childhood as an international star affected her. Um, But interestingly enough, she does have an upcoming movie called Bad Behavior, where she plays a former child star navigating a complicated relationship with her daughter. So child stardom seems to have left some kind of impression. Hmm. And that is an experience that you share, Rivka. So I'm curious, like, how do you relate to this idea of being swept out of your childhood home and into unfamiliar territory? Yeah, it was pretty surreal. I mean, I grew up in in Chicago. We weren't a rich family. Like, we kind of just were getting by. And then out of nowhere, this opportunity to audition for a movie comes into my lap. And then I didn't think I would get it. Um, And then when I did, I was like, wait, what? Like, okay. And then almost immediately I realized I'm like, oh, I'm like at work. Like this is my job uh, is, is to be here. And it wasn't really until we started doing press um, and then the premiere of School of Rock happened. And I was like, oh, like people recognize me. Cool. Yeah. Then my agent started getting mail from Singapore and like, you know, like <laughs> similar to Jennifer, um, you know, I had a big fan base in Asia. It's a really odd thing to kind of be at school one day and then be in Japan the next day premiering a movie you were in and being kind of taken around Tokyo by uh, tour guides and and being pointed at and recognized <laughs> um, when you're like 10, 11 years old. Wow. Yeah, I mean, I 
I can't imagine. Um, so just to bring it back to our child star, Jennifer Connelly, and to put a button on that, I'm happy to say that, thankfully, her story has a happy ending. She's had a long, successful career. And last year, she starred in the highest-grossing movie in the U.S., Top Gun Maverick, which also made it to number two at the Japanese box office in 2022, (laughs) which, you know, in the back of my mind, I hope that some Japanese viewers went, saw Jennifer Connelly on screen, and they were taken back to their own childhoods. Maybe her jingle started playing in their heads, and maybe they were able to remember that brief moment when an American teen became an unlikely pop star in Japan. (laughs) Rivka, thank you so much for joining me on this Domino journey. If people want to keep up with you, where can they find you? You can follow me on Instagram and TikTok at Rivka.Reyes. I have a bunch of links in my bios for those platforms that you can keep up on my short film, Gianna. And that's pretty much it. Awesome. Well, thank you again. Thank you. Not Past It is a Spotify original produced by Gimlet and ZSP Media. This episode was produced by Ethan Oberman. Next week? I'm not going to tell you what's coming next week this time. It'll be a surprise. But we do want to hear from all of you, Not Past It listeners. What's your favorite Not Past It episode or moment? What have you learned from the show that surprised you? Record a voice memo and email it to notpastit at zspmedia.com. And you might catch your voice in a future episode. Our producer is Ramoy Phillip. Our associate producers are Nick Del Rose and Laura Newcomb. Our production assistant is Jasper Jarecki. The supervising producer is Erica Morrison. Editing by Kelly Prime. Andrea B. Scott is our executive editor. Fact-checking by Ian Michael, sound design and mixing by Emma Munger, original music by Sax Kicks Ave, Willie Green, Jay Bless, and Bobby Lord. Our theme song is Toko Liana by Coco Co, with music supervision by Liz Fulton, technical direction by Zach Schmidt, show art by Elise Harvin and Talia Rockman. The executive producer at ZSP Media is Zach Stewart-Pontier. The executive producer from Gimlet is Matt Schiltz. If you want to learn more about the life of Maury Sendak, Check out the Spike Jones documentary, Tell Them Anything You Want, a portrait of Maury Sendak. Special thanks to Lydia Polgreen, Abby Ruzica, Dan Behar, Jen Han, Emily Wiedemann, and Liz Stiles. Follow Not Past It Now to listen for free, exclusively on Spotify. Click the bell next to the follow button to get notifications for new episodes. Check out our new comment feature in the Spotify app. And while you're there, hey, why don't you rate us five stars? You can follow me on Twitter, at Simone Polanin. Thanks for hanging. We'll see you next week. Yeah, I hand modeled for McDonald's. I've been there. Oh, okay. <laughs> Glam. <laughs> Holding a French fry? Um, it was actually a nugget container. <laughs> <laughs>